Welcome once again to the crowd who stayed in town for Labor Day. Um, hello to those listening online because you're out of town for Labor Day. One family in our church even decided, I think, to take this Labor Day weekend idea seriously, and uh, they had a baby this weekend. Friday night, Logan Clint was welcomed into the world. Mother and baby are both healthy. Yes. Yeah. Pretty cool. So, um, hey, we know on Labor Day, people are going to be out of town, and only a rookie pastor would start a sermon series on Labor Day weekend. Um, but I guess that's what happens when you install a rookie pastor. He does rookie pastor things. So I just couldn't wait for us. To, I'm too excited about this series. Um, and so next week, we're going to start like a head first dive into First Peter. But I wondered. Can we just like dip our toes in the first two verses today? Are you guys okay with that? Okay, good. Let's do it. Let me pray for us. God, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say, let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. It's hard to live away from home. Has anybody ever lived away from home before? Most of us probably have, whether it was moving to a new state temporarily or permanently, whether it was some, some of you are transplanted from one country to another, it's not easy to live away from home. Uh, I remember feeling this when I first went off to college, over a thousand miles away from home. You know, back home, I never got my bike stolen. Back home... Um, I never had this experience where a sweet mate was climbing into my bed in, drunk in the middle of the night. Um, back home, I never got backed into a corner by people I lived with uh, to tell me to make sure that I never said a word about the marijuana they were growing in their bathroom sink. Uh, none of those things ever happened to me back home. They all did happen in college pretty quickly. Um, and actually, one of those happened the first day, and so I spent a lot of time that first night crying in the hallway outside my dorm room. Um, now, I don't tell that story to, um, with the intention of terrifying those of you who just sent a kid off to college. Um, <laughs> my intention is that uh, I just remember that moment there sitting in the hallway crying my first night in the dorm room as a moment in which I was thinking, man, it's not, it's not easy to live away from home. And we're about to launch into a letter here, First Peter, that we're going to be studying from now through November, in which the author, Peter, keeps saying over and over again that, hey, Christians, you are people, you're a people who live away from home, live far from home, and that's not easy. Uh, would you open with me to First Peter chapter 1? First Peter chapter one. You're going to want to be there to look at these first two verses because we're going to look at them in depth. Let me give you some background as you're turning there. Uh, the author of this letter is Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus. Um, it's a five-chapter long letter, probably written maybe in the early 60s AD. And as such, it's probably been about 30 years now since that crazy couple of months when Jesus died and then rose again, and then ascended into heaven, and then the Father and Son sent the Holy Spirit down on the followers of Jesus. In the 30 years since that series of events, 
the Christian uh, community has grown and spread all over the Roman Empire and beyond. Um, God has even used persecution to spread it. We see that in the book of Acts. But do you remember what Peter, the author of the letter, do you remember what he was doing on that first day, 30 years before the writing of this letter, uh, when the Holy Spirit came on the people? Do you remember what Peter's role was there in Acts 2? He was the one who was preaching that sermon, right? That sermon we see in Acts 2 where 3,000 people in one day came to know, came to place their faith in Jesus at that big Jewish festival. Um, Since then, Peter has gone out just as much as the church has. He's going to end up in Rome eventually, uh, ministering there. This may very well be where he writes this letter from, from Rome. And he's writing to Christians in five provinces around the Roman Empire, uh, mostly in what we would call today Turkey. Uh, So here's on a map, if you're trying to situate it, here are the five provinces that he lists as the places where he is writing to. He's writing to the Christians there. The common situation that all these Christians are facing, if we go to the next one, um, the common situation they're facing is that they're under pressure. They're under pressure. And it's not the sort of pressure yet that is um, all-out hostility, like they're not being, Christians aren't being burned at the stake yet. That's going to come a little bit later under the Emperor Nero. Christians aren't being rounded up and dragged into prison or killed in a systematic fashion by the Roman Empire yet. That's coming later. What it is at this point is it's more local persecution. Uh, and right on the brink of persecution, really. It's more like mockery. It's more like uh, hostility from your neighbors. It's more like financial pressure. It's more like the threat of losing your job because of your faith. That's the kind of situation that the uh, recipients of this letter are facing. Why? Why would they be facing that hostility? Well, they're living in a time and place in which it was considered incredibly rude, backwards, even bigoted, to believe and especially to teach that there's only one God and that salvation is found in no one else. I'm going to say that again because I hope it clicks. They were living, the, the recipients of this letter were living in a time and place in which it was considered incredibly backwards, bigoted, even hateful, to believe or to teach that there's only one God and that salvation is found in no one else. If that sounds familiar at all, then you know why we're studying First Peter this fall. Let's take a look here at these just first two verses to see how Peter chooses to start off this letter. My clicker isn't working if you're able to just advance to the next slide. Um, Verses 1 and 2, if you'll follow along with me. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. In just these two verses, Peter tells his readers who they are, how they got here. If you'd advance to that one, uh, I'm not working here. So who they are, how they got here, and what they need. Three things he tells them. And because this is not a specific letter to one particular place, but rather a general letter, that's going to apply to five different provinces worth of Christians. 
we're going to be able to apply this pretty directly to ourselves and just talk about who we are, how we got here, and what we need as we go. So first, uh, who we are. Looking at verse 1, and we're going to be seeing that uh, it's uh, this. That we are a people chosen to live in a place that's not our home. We are a people chosen to live in a place that's not our home. Where am I getting that? I'm getting that from verse 1, from five words in verse 1 in particular. Elect exiles of the dispersion. Elect exiles of the dispersion. There's so much packed in those words. Let's unpack it, starting with that word exiles. That word exiles there, uh, the word translated exiles is a word that refers to somebody living in a place that's not their home. It could be that they were forced there, like what we would normally think of with the term exiles, but sometimes that word gets used for people who chose to migrate from one place to another. It could be either. But in either case, this is a person who's a resident alien or a sojourner in a place that doesn't feel to them like home. So we ask the question, well, surely, thank you, not all of Peter's readers would have been migrants, right, from one place to another. Surely some of them have been living in the same town for many, many years. Maybe some of them have been living in the same house their whole life. Surely they aren't feeling the experience of exile, right? But according to Peter, they are. According to Peter, all Christians are exiles, even if everyone in town knows your name. In other words, even if you haven't experienced a physical or geographical exile, all Christians are exiles in a spiritual sense. How so? Well, it just boils down to this. As Christians, heaven is home. Here is not. As Christians, there in heaven, we are citizens. Here, we are exiles. That's consistent with New Testament teaching of Paul of the author to the Hebrews in chapter 11. But, but here's a question though. If Peter's saying, which he is, that all Christians are exiles, but whether we feel like exiles here or not, that's what's true of us, is that we're exiles on this earth, living in a place that's not our home. What I want to ask to those of us who are Christians this morning is this. Do you feel like an exile? Like, is that your experience here on this earth? Or... Does this place, and this place meaning earth, meaning America, meaning the North Shore, does this place feel like home to you, actually? I think it's an important question for us to consider because if we find ourselves living here for any length of time as Christians and feeling just right at home consistently, that should be cause to stop and think, am I really living as distinctively Christian as I think I am? I'll say that one more time. If I'm living here on this earth or here in America, here on the North Shore for any length of time as a Christian and I just feel right at home consistently, that should be cause for me to stop and consider whether I'm really living as distinctively Christian as I think I am. Let me unpack what I mean by that. There was a time in world history called Christendom. Everybody say Christendom. Christendom, Christendom was the time, also places... Where, uh, where and when Christianity was the default. It was assumed that you were a Christian, right? So if you missed church on Sunday morning, you were going to hear, you were gonna, your boss was going to talk to you about it on Monday morning, right? This was the time 
when if you wanted to have a successful business in town, you needed to belong to one of the local churches if you had any hope of gaining any respect in the community. Christendom. Um, We are no longer living in Christendom. Um, What about those people in Christendom, though, during that time period? Were those people exiles? Again, I think Peter says yes, actually. That true Christians living in every time and place, since the giving of the Holy Spirit until Jesus returns, all true Christians are exiles here on this earth in the various cultures where God has spread us out. And actually, Christians, some Christians who were living during the time of Christendom, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Soren Kierkegaard, they could see it. And they were pleading with their contemporaries, please, please, please wake up and see that Christendom does not equal the kingdom of God. That there are deep flaws within Christendom. That Christendom is not the answer. That if we're at home in Christendom, that's a problem. Christendom was diseased just like every other culture and subculture in human history. So, when we feel ourselves in a time of exile, and as I asked that question, many of you I saw nodding your heads, yes, I do feel like I'm in exile here increasingly. When we start to feel that, the answer, I think, then, isn't to long for some bygone era of Christendom, as though if we could just get Christendom back, then we'd feel at home again. I think instead... An answer is to remember that we were never supposed to feel like home here in the first place. This place was never supposed to feel like home, that none of the kingdoms of this earth will ever be the kingdom of God until Christ returns. So we're living in a place that's not our home, but I said more than that, didn't I? I said not only that we're living in a place that's not our home, but we're people chosen to live in a place that's not our home. Where am I getting that chosen, this language? Let's take a look again at verse 1. I'm getting that from the fact that Peter doesn't just call his readers exiles. He calls them elect exiles. Elect exiles. What's that word elect mean? Well, just like when you have an elective surgery, it's a surgery that you chose. An elect person is a chosen person. Whenever that term elect is used in the Bible, it's used of a person or a group that is chosen from out of another group that is not chosen. So, Bible quiz time. In the Old Testament, who were the elect or chosen people? Israel, right? The Jewish people. They were elect because out of all the nations that are on the earth, God chose one. The nation of Israel. He chose one to redeem them and then to extend salvation to the rest of the world through their line. Right? They were elect. But now, in a shocking turn, Peter opens up his letter where he's writing to Christians, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, all Christians, and he calls us elect, chosen people. In other words, yes, you're exiles, but you're not just any exiles, you're chosen exiles. So we might say it like this, um, if that that little word exile pushes us from the center of society to the margins, then that second little word, elect, gives us great dignity here out on the margins. Um, think about it this way too. If, we were, if all that could be said about us is that we were exiles, right? Pushed to the margins in society. Um, in a place that wasn't our home. That would be a kind of depressing existence, right? 
All we could do, if that were the case, is to join the chorus of voices today, liberal and conservative, that are competing, it seems, to uh, win the battle of who can claim to be the most oppressed or who can claim to be the most marginalized, right? That's all we could ever really do if all we were was exiles. But we're more than just exiles. We're elect exiles, and that changes everything. That means that our mistreatment, whatever mistreatment comes our way, is not the sum total of who we are. We're not just exiles, we're elect exiles, meaning that we were chosen. Yes, chosen for salvation, but also chosen for this, for this moment of exile. But our God, he hasn't just piled us up all together as Christians to commiserate over our time of exile, has he? He has spread us out, actually, and that's what Peter says in the last three words of our phrase, elect exiles, what? Of the dispersion. Elect exiles of the dispersion. You know, I only remember one sermon from my whole time growing up, which is weird because I was at church every Sunday, but I only remember one thing that pastor ever said. And I don't know why this stood out to me, but here's what I remember him saying. Christians are like manure. Have you heard this? Christians are like manure. If you pile them up in one place, they do nothing but stink. If you spread them out, now they can do a little bit of good. And that's all I remember him saying. Um, But there's some truth in that, right? And we see it in the book of Acts when God spreads his church out all over the Roman Empire and beyond in part through persecution. Um, Our God has spread us out. And so Peter uses that term as he looks at the situation. He sees a dispersion. Uh, In Greek it's diaspora, which is usually used for the Jewish people who have been scattered all over the world. Peter says there's something similar going on with the Christian faith now. Christians have been scattered all over the Roman Empire and beyond in a dispersion. When I think about that term dispersion and as I was reflecting on it this week, um, I can't help but think about our little church family here at North Sub, spread out all over the North Shore. Three years ago, I asked Karen to uh, help me uh, compile this, and I uh, got a map of where all the people in our directory live. Um, And I take a look at this from time to time. And as I look at it and as I pray about it, here's what what goes through my mind. I think there's a God who loves this area, loves the North Shore, loves the people here, and who wants to see this North Shore turned upside down for his kingdom. Who wants to see this dead, godless, lifeless area come to life with the gospel. And what if... What if he spread all these people out in all these places so that we would be lights in all the towns where we find ourselves so that we would be a people who were able to participate in what he's doing? You've read the stories before of regions that were once dead coming alive in revival by the Holy Spirit. What if God allowed us to be part of a story like that? I think about that. Well, hey, we've spent a lot of time just on five words, elect exiles of the dispersion. But the reason we could spend time camping out there, the reason that's worth our time is because Peter, I hope you see, isn't just starting out this letter by wasting words with just pleasantries at the outset. He's actually introducing what will be the major themes of the letter right here in the first two verses. And what theme is he introducing here in verse one, the verse that we just looked at? I think it's the theme of who we are. He's talking right off the bat in verse 1 about who we are. And I think the reason he's doing that is because 
if we are a people who's going to flourish in exile, which is kind of the subheading of our series, Exiles Flourishing on the Margins, if we have any hope of flourishing on the margins, part of what we're going to have to do is know who we are. That's a critical piece of it. And who are we according to verse 1? We're exiles, but not just any exiles. We're exiles who are elect, chosen for this. Chosen for salvation, chosen for this very exile moment that we find ourselves in. But how did we get here? It brings us to the next section, how we got here. Um, What we're going to see is God put us here for a reason. There are three phrases here at the beginning of verse 2 that we're going to unpack. Each of these three phrases add color to what was already said in verse 1 about being exiles that were chosen uh, and dispersed all over the world. So let's break it down phrase by phrase. You'll want to follow along. First phrase is this, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. A little thought exercise here. <clears throat> there are two types of knowing, at least two types of knowing. And so there must be at least two types of foreknowing, knowing in advance as well. Um, you can know something factually, right? For example, I know the fact that in the next couple weeks, my wife's going to have a baby and he's going to be born at Evanston Hospital. I mean, I guess I, at least I think I know that for a fact. I guess babies do get born in the backseat of cars. That's a terrifying thought. Um, But I know the fact of where my son will be born. That's different from relational foreknowledge, which is to say that I know my son who hasn't been born yet. The reason I know him in some sense is because I've been praying over him. I've been putting my hand on mommy's tummy and feeling him kick and move, getting to know him that way. And I've decided in advance, before he's, not, before he's even born, that I'm going to enter into a personal relationship with him. So I know about him, but I also know him, right? There's factual knowledge, factual foreknowledge, and a relational foreknowledge. Does that make sense? Here's the question. In verse 2, when it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, like we are chosen for this exile experience according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, which of the two is it talking about? Is Peter just saying that God knows the facts in advance, that one day we were going to choose him and one day we would be in exile? Or is Peter claiming something more than that? I think it's certainly not not the first one, right? Our God, according to the Bible, knows everything, past, present, and future. So he surely has the factual foreknowledge uh, that we would come to faith in him, those of us who belong to him, and that we would be exiles here on the earth. But I think there's more. I think there's more because every other time the New Testament uses this word foreknow or foreknowledge in the New Testament, it's never just the factual. It's always the relational too. There's always a personal affection and care involved. It's always talking about a choosing in advance to know someone relationally. So, the exile we find ourselves in is, according to verse 2, it's according to, it lines up with the foreknowledge, the personal foreknowledge of God, our Father. Now, how much could a fancy doctrine like relational foreknowledge really mean to a real, living, breathing Christian who is being ostracized in the neighborhood or is being mocked at work for her faith, right? Uh, to Dan and Truett Cathy, the founders of Chick-fil-A, right? 
um, how could that really mean to them when they're getting blasted in the media for their for holding to beliefs that have been held by all Christians everywhere for 2,000 years? How could this even matter? I think it actually could mean a great deal. Here's what I mean. If God's foreknowledge of us isn't, if he doesn't have this relational foreknowledge of us, then the suffering I experience as a Christian here is actually something like somebody just walking up to me on the street and jamming a needle into my leg. Hang with me on this analogy. It'll make more sense in a second. The suffering I'm experiencing here as a Christian is like somebody just walking up to me on the street and jamming a needle into my leg. However, if I'm foreknown by God and the suffering that's happening to me is in line with the foreknowledge of a personal God who personally tenderly cares for me, now there's still the pain of a needle being jammed into my leg, but it's very different. It's different because it's more like the pain of a needle getting jammed into my leg when I'm in a doctor's office sitting on a table, and I am holding the hand of my father, who's speaking words of comfort to me, saying, this is good for you, and I have a plan for you, that, and this is going to be best for you if you endure this. Right? It's still painful, but it's a very different kind of pain. There's hope in the midst of that pain, because now I can believe that there's a purpose to it, that there's something in it uh, for my good, right? What's happening to us is according to the foreknowledge of God our Father. Phrase 2, it's in the sanctification of the Spirit. Do you see that there in verse 2? It's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's in the sanctification of the Spirit. It's like when you go to a sporting event. And a major sporting event and like maybe 90% of the crowd is wearing the home team's colors. Like 10% of the crowd is wearing the away team's colors. That away team contingent stands out. They're distinct. They're set apart because of the colors that they're wearing, right? I think there might be something like that going on in this language of in the sanctification of the Spirit. And I say that because sanctification just means the event or process of setting something apart. To be sanctified is just to be set apart. And so, if we are living in exile, and if that exile is in the sanctification of the Spirit, what that means is that we are operating here on this earth in a realm of set-apartness, right? Meaning that, yes, we've been pushed to the margins, but out there on the margins where we find ourselves, God is preserving us. Specifically, His Holy Spirit is preserving us, keeping us distinct, set-apart like we were meant to be. In other words, we haven't yet given in. We're still wearing our team colors, even though we're in the minority, It's in the sanctification of the Spirit. But what are we being set apart for? In all these exile experiences that the Holy Spirit uses to set us apart, what are we being set apart for? That's that's what the third phrase answers. Do you see that? According to the foreknowledge of God, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for... Let's pause there. And let's think about what we might expect Peter to say. Here's what I might expect him to say. Hey... This exile is happening to you. You were chosen and set apart for heaven. Might expect that. Or you were chosen and set apart for forgiveness of sins. Might expect that. What does he say? For obedience. Obedience? If you've been around North Sub for any length of time, you might say, wait, time out. 
Um, I thought you teach here at North Sub that we don't earn heaven by our obedience, right? That, that the good news is that God saves sinners even though we were disobedient to him. So what, what are you talking about that we were set apart for obedience? Well, it's certainly true that God saves sinners who are disobedient. However, consistently in scripture we see that forgiveness of sins and obedience are two sides of the same coin in some ways. Peter treats it like that too. Do you see, if we finish verse 2, we'll see it. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Right? The two go together. And here's how they go together. Let's talk about the obedience piece first. There's no way around it here in verse 2 other than to conclude that part of what we were set apart for, part of what God foreknew us for, part of what he chose us for is for obedience, for keeping his commands. And Jesus said it too, didn't he? He said, this is love for me. What? To obey my commands, right? This is love for God, to obey his commands. So, <clears throat> part, that's part of what we're set apart for. However, none of us does that perfectly. Right? And when we don't do it perfectly, that's when the second, the other side of the coin comes in. It's the sprinkling with his blood. Now, when I see that term sprinkling, I think that's a kind of peculiar word, right? Like he could have said Dipping, he could have said a lot of different things, but sprinkling with his blood, that's a vivid image that Peter's creating. So it makes me think, is there any other place in scripture that Peter might be referring to when he uses that particular, he chooses to use that particular imagery of sprinkling with blood? And sure enough, when we look at the Old Testament, we see there are three times in the Old Testament when human beings are sprinkled with sacrificial blood. Two of them don't really seem to have any connection with this, but one of them does. It's the rite, the ritual in Leviticus 14, when someone with leprosy, which is a contagious skin disease, um, is being restored to the community. The leprosy is gone. They've been separated from the fullness of the experience of the presence of God because they haven't been able to worship in the temple. They've They've been separated from the community for so long. Now the ritual to bring them back into the community and back into full relationship with God is to be sprinkled with the blood. Why would Peter bring that up here? Why would he allude to that? by using this term sprinkling with blood? I think it's because just like leprosy separated people from the community and separated them from the full experience of the presence of God, our disobedience can do the same. And he just mentioned obedience, but we all fail. And so we can miss out on the full experience of the presence of God. We can miss out on the fullness of community. And that's why there's good news that the same blood of Jesus that originally saved us and washed away our past sins continues to be sprinkled over us in a spiritual sense to keep us in him and keep us in the community of faith. In other words, the blood of Jesus isn't just for the erasure of our past sins. It's something sprinkled over us in a spiritual sense every day. So hey, three jam-packed phrases here. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. But there's one more thing I wanted to make sure we didn't miss in those three phrases in verse 2. Did you see the Trinity at work there? We talked about the Trinity earlier in the service, but in verse 2, did you notice that all three persons of God are mentioned as participating in this activity? They're all envisioned as having distinct actions. However, all three of the actions are toward one goal, the goal of bringing to full and complete salvation the elect exiles. 
And when I thought about that this week, I, I couldn't help but think about Father, Son, Spirit working together to save us and keep us saved. Uh, I, c- I couldn't help but thinking about uh, people, even including notable Christian leaders in recent days that have publicly walked away from the faith. We should expect to continue seeing that, maybe even more and more as our exile experience ramps up because that's what happens during a time of exile when the cost becomes higher and higher of following Jesus. It becomes more and more tempting for all of us to say, you know what, no thanks. I'm done with this. I, I, I don't need this Jesus thing anymore if the cost is going to be that high. Right? It's only because Father, Son, Spirit are working together to save us and to keep us saved that any of us are left in the faith, right? If it wasn't for their work continuing on our behalf, I know I wouldn't still be in the faith. None of us would be left finishing the race. Praise God. Praise the triune God that he not only saved us, but is continuing to save us. Let's finish up the third point much more briefly, what we need. What Peter's readers needed, he felt, was grace and peace for their journey. That's how he finishes up verse 2 when he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Remember I said that this intro previews the themes of the whole letter? What we're going to see in the end, at the very end of the letter, not to spoil the, the finish, um, but if you've been reading ahead in First Peter to prepare for this series, you know that it ends like this, with this one final kind of summary from Peter. In chapter 5, verse 12, he says, This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. And you're going to be hearing that over and over again from now through November from us as we call each other to stand firm together in the true grace of God. When Peter uh, says this then, when he prays for people, uh, the people that he's writing to, he knows that in order to stand firm in grace, you have to have experienced grace. There's only so long I'm going to be able to stand firm if my experience of grace has been so shallow, right? So Peter is basically saying here, you're going to need a lot, a lot of grace for this journey in exile. So my prayer to God is that you may have grace and an abundance of it. The grace he's talking about, by the way, isn't, it's not just poise under pressure, some kind of vague idea like that. It's the, it's the undeserved favor of God poured out on us. It's the sort of grace that goes to a cross to die for people who only have ever acted like his enemies. It's the sort of grace that does that in advance before we were born knowing that we were only ever going to treat him as his enemies. And yet, through no deserving of our own, dies for us anyway to bring us into his family. I don't know about you, but I'm more able to stand firm in grace when that picture of grace is the one at the forefront of my mind, the God of grace dying on a cross for me. But you notice he doesn't just say, may grace be multiplied to you. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And I don't think that's accidental either. We're going to see over the course of this letter that Peter's readers are starting to suffer. And as they're starting to suffer, they must be asking a question, how am I going to find peace, wholeness, stability in the midst of suffering when it seems like the world's turning against me. And so I think this prayer of Peter's for peace is as potent of a prayer for us today as it was then as we 
turn on the news and see uh, Christian business owners' licenses being revoked for living out their faith as we see academics being denied faculty positions because of the Christian convictions that they hold as we see Christians being relentlessly mocked on social media and in TV shows and in popular songs. Peace. Something that we need. So hey, our big idea today is just this. Let's embrace life on the margins since our exile is not an accident. Let's embrace life on the margins since our exile is not an accident. When I use that term embrace, I'm not saying that uh, in some sort of masochistic way as though we would um, relish in the fact that we're being mistreated at times. But I am using that word intentionally because when we read through 1 Peter, it's more than just a call to tolerate exile or to survive exile. If the same God who chose us for this and who foreknew us personally and tenderly, and who's sanctifying us all throughout, if that God wanted us in this situation and chose us for it, what a shame it would be for us to spend our time griping and complaining that we found ourselves here in exile, right? I told you about my first night of college, uh, well, first night in the dorm when I spent most of the night crying in the hallway. Um, But what I did next was I remembered why I was there. And for me, why I was there happened to be because I believed that God had called me there to that school and to that team, that football team that I was on, to that dorm room with my teammates because... I believe these people were going to win a national championship. And what if, they could, what if a few of them could get hold of the life that's found in Jesus Christ? And then they go on to have this huge platform among tons and tons of people. What if I could influence a few of my teammates for Christ who would then go on to influence many others? That was the vision that I had going into college. And as I sat there and cried in the hallway and kind of gathered myself, I realized none of that has changed. That's all still the same. And so the God who called me to this place must have chosen for me to go through this. And if that's the case, the only thing that's left to do is to embrace it and move forward. And so I wonder if maybe it's not so different for us in 2019 on the North Shore. If the God who's chosen us, if the God who's set his foreknowing, electing love on us, if he's placed us here, then what we're experiencing is exactly what God wants for us to experience. If our exile isn't an accident, then... Instead of spending our time griping and complaining together about finding ourselves in exile, what if instead we join together in embracing it? Let me pray for us. God, let that be true of us. That we don't miss out on what you have for us in exile and what you have for our neighbors and our communities in our exile by griping and complaining about what you've allowed us to go through and what you're going to allow us to go through in the years ahead. Lord, instead, help us to embrace it in the sense that we welcome the hardship that you allow us to go through and we seek to glorify you in the midst of it. Thank you that we don't have to do that on our own strength, but that you send your Holy Spirit to sanctify us so that we might operate in the realm of the set apart. And that everything that comes our way is only 
what you've sent for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.